0: Every year, I will hold evangelistic meetings in different parts of the world, and the Adventist message burns brighter and brighter in my soul every year. I, um, I have more confidence in the integrity of the Adventist message today than I did 40 years ago when I started preaching it, so it burns more brightly in my soul and my heart and my spirit every year. Somebody said, well, do you ever get any doubts? Look, I married my wife 40 years ago. I put away doubts then. I had a person say to me once, you've got to keep an open mind. What, do you get up every morning if you're married and say, well, I'm going to check out 15 others and see if I made the right decision or not? I have a sermon I preach called The Value of Closed-Mindedness. Some things my mind is closed about. Jesus is my Savior. You can't prove to me differently. I already investigated that. I don't have to get up every morning and say, Is Jesus my Savior? I already know that. All this business about having an open mind, you apply it to marriage. You get up in the morning, you say, Oh, darling, I've got to keep an open mind now. I'm going to go out and investigate seven others. You know, you know, not at all. There are some things that you, you weigh the evidence, you make your decision, and you move on. My wife's become sweeter after 40 years. I know a lot about her. I'm open to find out more about her charms and her love. With Jesus, I'm open to find out more about his charms and his love. If you wrote a book about my beloved church and all its faults, I wouldn't read it. If you wrote a book about my, about my beloved church and all its faults, the church is the bride of Christ. If you go write a book about the faults of Jesus bride, you got you're accountable to Jesus. You miss that. If you go write a book in your smug complacency about all the faults of Jesus' bride, you got Jesus is going to deal with you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever we say or write, it must be in love. There's places that the church needs improvement but it does not need a lot of critics tearing it down and stabbing it in the back because it indeed is the bride of Jesus. And Jesus loves his bride. And according to Ephesians, one day the bride of Christ is going to rise spotless, pure, without a wrinkle or any such thing. Well, that was just a little aside. We are getting ready for session number two and we're going to pray. We never open the Word of God without praying. Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for your word. Most of all, thank you for Jesus, who is the giver of the word and the living word. Inspire our hearts as we study, lift our vision again. In Christ's name, amen. HMS Richards was invited to a meeting of non-Seventh-day Adventist pastors. And as he attended the meeting... He was sitting at supper that evening at the banquet with a pastor that didn't know that Pastor Richards was an Adventist. And as they began talking, this pastor looked over at Pastor Richards and they were talking about different religious groups, different religious denominations. And the one pastor looked at Pastor Richards and he said, you know, those Adventists, they're they're, they're kind of a cult. And he said, it's too bad that it's just too bad, Pastor Richards, that, that we have those Adventists. Because if we didn't have those Adventists, you know, we wouldn't be so confused about Revelation. <laughs> Pastor Richards kind of smiled <laughs> and he looked at him and he said, You know something? It is too bad that we have those Adventists. Because if we didn't have those Adventists, we wouldn't understand the truth about Revelation. (laughs) I mean, you kind of joked him for a little bit, you know. And it is true that just as God used the book of Romans in the Reformation period and used Martin Luther to generate and stimulate revival and that Romans was present truth for that hour, so in the last days, Revelation is especially present truth for our hour. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we read an introduction to the book of Revelation. Many Bibles will say the revelation of St. John. This is really the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' final revelation to an end-time people. The book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So this is the revelation of Jesus. And it's a revelation that Jesus gave regarding things that must shortly take place. In verse 3, there is a triple blessing. The Father blesses you, the Son blesses you, and the Holy Spirit blesses you. When you see the triple blessing, that's always the blessing of the the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Blessed is he who reads. So as we read this end-time material in Revelation, you will be blessed. Blessed are those that hear. As you hear the words of this prophetic seminar, you will be blessed. But the reason to read and to hear is to keep. And blessed are those who keep the things that are in it, for the time is near. The closer the time comes for the fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies, the more important it is to clearly understand them. Now, Revelation's prophecies are divided into two parts, and really you can divide the book of Revelation into two sections, chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 to 22. Chapter 1 in the book of Revelation is an introduction. Then you have three immediate sequences of seven that take you to chapter 11 the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. They take you from chapter 2 to chapter 11 and cover most of that territory with an interjection of Revelation 4 and 5, which you really see the Lamb at the throne of God. Those seven sequences take you from John's day down to the end of time. Just as Daniel has a major sequence prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 that is amplified in Daniel chapter 7, that is further amplified in Daniel 8, and further amplified in Daniel 11, you will never interpret prophecy wrongly if you understand the principle of repetition and enlargement. The reason so many misapply prophecy is because they do not understand that principle. In repetition and enlargement says that in Daniel 2, you have a basic outline of history that takes you from the days of Babylon, to persia Greece, Rome, and then the breakup of the Roman Empire, then the coming of Christ. That's Daniel 2. Then you go to Daniel 7, you cover the same ground, and it adds the judgment and the little horn. You go to Daniel 8, it covers the same ground, Babylon through Rome, the breakup of the Roman Empire, then the little horn, the papacy, then the judgment, and then the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8. You go to Daniel 11, and in the conflict of the king of the north, it does essentially the same thing, leaving out Babylon because his vision is in the days of Medo-Persia. Here's a principle of prophecy. First, repetition and enlargement. The the, the earlier prophecies give you a basis, then they repeat and enlarge. Secondly, the prophet time-sequence prophecies always begin where the prophet is. Time-sequence prophecies always begin where the prophet is. So in the days of Daniel, the prophecies would begin in the nation of Babylon. They anchor you there. When Babylon is fading away, like in Daniel chapter 8, he starts in, in Medo-Persia, which is the second empire, because that empire is gone. If that is true, and you take the same principle and apply it to Revelation, where should Revelation's prophecies begin? You've got it. In the days of John or in the days of Rome. Precisely the case. If you don't deal with the seven... Uh, churches, the seven seals and the seven trumpets. That way, you'll get all confused in prophetic interpretation. You'll try to apply the trumpets to the end time, and it'll be a. You'll try to put them into time sequence prophecy, and it'll really confuse you. But if you understand, John one gives you the introduction. All time sequence prophecies begin in the, um, in in the place where the prophet lives. And then, what do you have then? You have the seven churches, which are your basic outline. Then you have your seven seals, which will amplify the seven churches even more. Then you'll have the seven trumpets that come on beyond that. Then when you come to Revelation 12, you have a hinge in the chapter, just like in Daniel. Daniel, you have your first six chapters that are historical. The first six chapters in Daniel describe how to be ready at end time. The last seven chapters in Daniel describe when end time events will occur. Revelation is similar, but in reverse. Revelation chapters 1 to 11 are the practical chapters of a church facing end time and how to prepare for end time. That's what you learn in the seven churches, the different kinds of Christians in every age and how to prepare. That's what you learn in the seven seals, what the church would face and how to prepare. That's what you learn in the seven trumpets. That's the whole purpose of the first 11. So you have the how at first in Revelation, and you have the when second. Starting with Revelation 12 to Revelation 22 you have the unfolding in very careful detail of end-time events. One of the things that is unique about Revelation is it counteracts the activity of Satan that's described in Ephesians 6. So if you have your Bible, turn, please, to Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul speaks about his day, and this principle will amplify at the end of time. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. This is the battle that we're fighting. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So there is a battle between Christ and Satan. There's a battle between good and evil. And if the devil deceived a third of the angels in heaven, can we not expect for him to pull out all his wiles on the, end, on the last day church? So we're entering into a battle, and we need to know the enemy's battle plan. Thank God we're not going into this battle in the dark. Thank God we are not left like others without adequate information. We have the enemy's battle plan in advance. We know his strategies. We know his tactics. We know exactly what he's going to do. Isn't that what many war generals want? In the Second World War, isn't that what the American government wanted? To understand the German battle plan? To understand what Hitler is going to do? We are a blessed people. The book of Revelation gives us the battle plan. The writings of Ellen White unfold the battle plan. The first thing that we're going to study in this session is, and the title of this section section is, Revival, Genuine or Counterfeit, Satan's Objects of Attack. Well, let's go now to page three in our booklet, The Object of Satan's Attack. There are three specific objects of Satan's attack, and he uses a different strategy on all of them. You're looking at the second chapter. You're looking at page three. At the right-hand side, top, The Object of Satan's Attack. First, number one, he will attack non-Christians. So you're writing that there, number one, non-Christians. Does everybody see where we are? If you need help, look at the person next to you. Okay, non-Christians. Secondly, he attacks Christians. And thirdly, he attacks SDAs or Seventh-day Adventists. For the first group of non-Christians, he uses a different strategy than he does with Christians and Adventists. And we're going to look at the two general strategies. Those that he'll use for non-Christians, those he'll use for Christians, including Adventists. So we're, right, we're ready to go for, for strategy number one. Here's Satan's two strategies for non-Christians. The first strategy is found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. Now, you may be wondering about this as a strategy. You've maybe thought of it in a different way. Have you ever thought of war, conflict, and strife as a strategy of deception before? We'll look at it. Wars happen not simply because political governments are in conflict. Wars happen because Satan wants them to happen. Because they're a strategy of deception, as I'll show you. If you look at Matthew 24, verse 7, it says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in diverse places. So you see where it says strategy number one? You're going to write there, war, conflict, strife. War, conflict, strife for strategy number one. Strategy number two, natural disasters, economic chaos, And social uh, collapse. So for strategy one, you're writing war, conflict, strife. For strategy two, you're writing natural disasters, economic chaos, and social collapse. Okay? Now, why is war a strategy? Why is war a strategy? Notice the box under strategy one where it says Satan delights in, and we're going to read it together as a class from Great Controversy, page 589. You ready? Great Controversy, page 589. Satan delights in war, for it excites the worst passions of the soul, and then sweeps into eternity its victims steeped in vice and blood. It is his object to incite the nations to war against one another. For he can thus divert the minds of the people from the work of preparation to stand in the day of God. Now, notice under that what we say. Wars happen because it is the express desire. The two words are express desire of the enemy of mankind that wars happen. Wars take place because Satan wants them to. So so what happens in war? People have the worst passions of their heart excited. And they're absorbed in that killing and that bloodshed. It's Satan's object to incite nations to war. That's why God wants his people to be people of peace, not people of war. May I have a little aside? Do you know that any Seventh-day Adventist young person today that signs up for the military, automatically, automatically, because we have no draft, forfeits all privileges for Sabbath and all privileges to bear arms. This idea that, oh, I can sign up for the military and I won't have to bear arms is not true in a time when there is no draft. And this idea, oh, I can sign up for the military and get Sabbath privileges is not true. We just got a ruling at the general conference today. Any young person that signs up, and our young people need to know this, If you sign up for the military today, you will have to work on Sabbath and you will have to bear arms. That's another question. But young people must be informed of the choice that they're making because it's a serious choice. Satan delights in war. It excites the worst passions of the soul, then sweeps into eternity its victims. The devil is going to use war as a strategy at end time. He's going to create crisis at end time. Why? He wants to divert our minds from preparation for the coming of Jesus. And then the next thing he's going to do, what's another strategy of the devil? Number two, natural disasters, economic chaos. Notice this statement, Great Controversy 589, 590. We want to say, what's the devil's strategy? Satan works through the elements, I'm quoting, to garner his harvest of of unprepared souls. He's studied the secrets of the laboratories of nature and he uses all his power to control the elements as far as God allows in accidents and calamities by sea and by land in great conflagrations what's a conflagration what's that fires you hear about any fires out there west coast you hear about any uh, elements out of control hurricane katrina's you hear, satan is studying the laboratories of nature what is he doing Studying the laboratories of nature, and what 's he doing in the laboratories of nature? he 's tampering with them so he can bring about hurricane, fire, flood, famine. OK, We continue. In accidents and calamities, by sea and by land, in great conflagration, in fierce tornadoes, in terrific hailstones, hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms. Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest, and famine and distress follow. He imparts to the air a deadly taint, and thousands perish by the pestilence. Air pollution, toxic waste in the air. These visitations are to become more and more what? More and more what? Frequent and disastrous. Destruction will be upon both man and beast. So will we have fewer natural disasters at end time? Fewer famines, fewer hurricanes, fewer fam- And who's behind all that? Who's doing all that? See? So he's working in two specific areas. The first is war calamity, so there'll be upheavals in society. Second, he's working in natural disasters to bring about economic chaos. Now, why is his plan working? Why does his plan work? Number one, people take it for granted that what? God causes these disasters. So when you're out there giving a Bible study, there's old Kevin Sears. He's teaching Bible work and Bible work. Great man of God, great Bible worker. What's one of the first questions they ask Kevin over there? They say, if God is God, why did Hurricane Katrina wipe away all those innocent people? Isn't that what they're asking you, Kevin? They're saying, if God is still God, why is so much evil happening in the world? I can't believe in a God because all these people are dying. And you know what that's doing? Satan stirs up the natural disasters and stirs up conflict, strife and war as much as God allows. Satan is the prince of the power of the what? Where do you find that? Are these Adventist youth? (laughs) Ephesians, you're going, you're close, that's good. What chapter? Two, this is good. What verse? Ephesians, we better look that one up. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Satan is the prince of the power of what? Ephesians 2 verse 2. Ephesians two two. you can remember that. You remember your girlfriend's phone number, you can remember that one. <laughs> Ephesians 2 verse 2. And he made alive who were, in and, and, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to, to the course of this word, according to the Prince of the power of what the air. the air, so he studies the laboratories of nature, he works in two areas: wars, conflict, strife, he works in the area of natural disasters. Now, people take it for granted that God causes these disasters. You see where we are, why does this plan work? Secondly, it gives God an opportunity Satan an opportunity, thank you, to blame disasters on You're going to write in faithful, Bible-believing Christians. That's what's going to happen at end time, isn't it? And we'll develop that scenario. Who are attempting to live in harmony with God's will. You're writing in faithful, Bible-believing Christians. Faithful, Bible-believing Christians who are attempting to live in harmony with God's will. So what's going to happen at end time? Remember the scenario. It's repetition and enlargement. What we're doing in the class, like what the Bible does. We studied three angels' messages. The gospel is going to be going to the ends of the earth. We preach the grace of God. It goes out to the ends of the world. We announce the fact that this is God's judgment hour. Call men and women to obedience to God. That call is done in the midst of increasing war, increasing calamity, increasing natural disasters. Satan works false miracles. And in those false miracles, he begins a false religious revival. But there are a certain group of people that won't go along. And when they don't go along... with this ecumenical unity movement of all religions. What does the devil do? Isn't that just like the devil? On one side, he causes the war, conflict, and strife. And on the other side, he says that the people who are worshipping the true God are the cause of that because they don't go along with the unity movement. So the devil works what we would say both ends against the middle, doesn't he? That's his strategy. Turn, please, to look at four strategies now that the devil is going to use. We saw the strategies that he uses on the unconverted. He uses war, conflict, strife. He uses natural disasters. And then he tries to say that God did all those things to harden those people in error. But when he sees that is not working as effectively on some, he has strategies that he'll use on Christians and on Seventh-day Adventists. Now, here's a word of warning. Satan's four strategies on groups two and three. It's not, it isn't our intent to condemn others. We simply want to arrive at a clear understanding of the methods Satan uses to deceive so that we can be more effective to cooperate with Christ in reaching out to save others. So we want to look at the devil's strategy. Take your Bible, please, in turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Strategy number one. The devil will not only use disaster, he will use... False and counterfeit miracles. Strategy number one. He will use false and counterfeit miracles. Matthew chapter 24. We're looking there at Matthew 24 and verse 24. False Christs and false prophets shall arise. And what shall these false Christs and false prophets do? They will show great signs and wonders... To deceive, if possible, the very elect. Who are the very elect? Who are the very elect? The people who have been given the treasure of the three angels' message for the last days. What does this text say? That great signs and wonders are going to come. They will come into the non-Adventist Christian world... But could one of the tests, is it possible that one of the tests that will come at end time on the Adventist church is a false religious revival within, characterized by sensational miracles within, and even tongues could come into our beloved church? Is that possible that the warning given here to the elect is a warning against false miracles? Can God work miracles? Yes. Will God work miracles at end time? Yes. Then we need to know how to tell the difference, don't we? Yes. We need to be able to understand. Is that important to know? Yes. Is it important to know the difference between true and false miracles at the end? Yes. Let me give you from the Bible... A way to know. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. How do you tell the difference between false and true miracles? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father in heaven, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? What have these people done in his name? Cast out demons in your name. What did they do in his name? And done many wonders, or what's another word for wonders? Miracles. Miracles in your name. So they did three things in his name. What were they? Prophesy in his name. Cast out demons in his name. Miracles in his name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. He never knew them? He never knew them? He never knew them when they were prophesying in his name? He never knew them? When they were casting out demons in his name, he never knew them. When they were working miracles in his name, whose words are these? These are the words of of who? Jesus. And he never knew these people. But whose name were they doing in it? Merely because they use his name does not mean that he is the one behind the activity. Why not? Why not? Because next verse, you that practice what? lawlessness. All the or iniquity which is lawlessness. All of the miracles in the world do not justify disobedience. Amen. How can you tell the difference between the true and false miracles? If you are more interested in the gifts of the Spirit, then you are the fruits of the Spirit. You are bordering, you are leaving your mind vulnerable to be deceived. If you're more interested in the gifts of the Spirit, where in the Bible does God tell us to seek for the gifts of healing or the gift of miracles or the gift of prophecy? My Bible says that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts severally as He will. We seek the fruits of the Spirit and God gives us the gift He sees fit. We seek love and joy and peace and longsuffering and patience and kindness. But if you are caught up in the spectacular and you want power you may get it from the source of fallen or false power seek the fruits of the spirit seek a converted heart open your heart and mind to give glory to God in every word you speak in your life allow Jesus to be manifest in you and say to God whatever you want to do with my life that glorifies you, I'm willing for you to do. Amen. But the emphasis on the charismatic gifts of the Spirit in many a church today is a is similar to a fix that is a quick fix for a superficial generation that knows little of disciplined minds studying the Word for the transformation of character in heart, mind, and soul, and life. When we're on our knees with the Word of God and the Spirit transforms our hearts and lives, we become safe vehicles for which, through which God can pour out His Holy Spirit. How do you tell the difference between false and true miracles? You tell it by attitude. You tell it by ambition. You tell it by what the heart seeks. God does not pour out the Holy Spirit in miracle-working power For those that are seeking it for their self-glory. God does not pour out the Holy Spirit follow me now God does not pour out the Holy Spirit on you in the morning to work a miracle so in the evening you can go party. God does not pour out the Holy Spirit. If you are more interested in the gift of tongues than dealing with your critical tongue, you're interested in the wrong tongue. (laughs) If you are more interested in the miracle of healing John's sickness than you are healing your lustful thoughts, you're interested in the wrong healing. If the miracle you want is the miracle of power in your life rather than the transformation of your heart, you're looking for the wrong miracle. And God is a group of people that say, Jesus, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me, you do it in your life. He will be we will be safe for him to pour the Holy Spirit out and we will see miracles to his glory back. Strategy number one. What is it? False and counterfeit miracles. Now, Satan accomplishes. You're looking. Session two, page four, left hand column. Satan accomplishes three objectives with these false and counterfeit miracles. He wants first number one to create a false religious excitement. That's what he's after. A false religious excitement. A false religious excitement that builds ego. A false religious excitement that builds the self. A false religious excitement that looks at me and not at him. So these counterfeit miracles create this false religious excitement. It's the illusion of religion, you see. It's the illusion of spirituality. But it's not the transformation of character. It's not repentance. It's not dealing with sin. It is dealing with a, what I was almost going to call it, it's an unsanctified ego is what it is. So it creates a false religious excitement. Second, false counterfeit miracles strengthen people in disobedience. Because if I got the power, what, I have to worry about the Sabbath? I got the power. Oh, you folk have the Sabbath, but we've got the power. So there's that, that dichotomy between, between truth and power. God never meant that to happen at all. So it, why does he work miracles? Creates a false religious excitement. It strengthens in rebellion. Thirdly, it discredits God's people. Oh, why should I go over there and join that that little small church? It's dead. I can go over here and get the power. You see, the devil takes what is partly true and amplifies it in the mind. There is no justification for any dead Seventh-day Adventist church. With the message we have and with the power of God, God wants every Adventist church to be on fire with the true Holy Ghost. The true Holy Spirit. Did you hear what happened in one of those Adventist churches recently? You didn't hear it? Preacher was preaching. And a guy died. Right during the sermon. He was about third row from the back. They brought in the paramedics. They had to carry seven people out before they found the dead one. It was a joke. Somebody got it. If, if, if you didn't understand it, the person next to you will explain it to you after. <laughs> Why does the devil work false miracles? He wants to create a false religious excitement. He wants to strengthen rebellion. He wants to discredit God's people and say, look how dead they are. Now, here are two things to note: Satan's counterfeits are always high quality. You know something about Satan? He never does a thing halfway. Satan never does a thing halfway. His counterfeits are always high quality. You remember when Moses threw down the rod and the rod became what? A A serpent. And what happened to those? They threw down rods too, those so-called wise men, Pharaoh's assistants, and they became what? Snakes too. Sure, Moses snake eat him up yeah but look Satan never does anything that's not high quality secondly Satan works counterfeit miracles and he also counterfeits the truth there is a powerful powerful passage in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 to 11 you don't want to miss this one you can never believe put it this way you can believe a lie, but you can only know the truth. You can believe a lie, but you only can know the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at verse 9 through 11. Notice how lies and miracles are put together in the same passage. It's quite a fascinating passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist's power, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So the Antichrist has power, signs, and lying wonders. He's the lawless one. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth. What What did they not receive? That they might be saved. For this reason, God sends a what? Allows to come, not active in sending, but he allows to come a strong delusion that they could believe what? A lie. So if you don't love the truth, you will believe a what? Lie. Lie. So the devil works up this false religious revival to counterfeit miracles. Then he introduces error. So in the context of these counterfeit miracles, people say, look, here is the power that's being poured out here. And they accept a lie. Because they don't love the truth. So what is the way not to receive a lie? It is to do what? So if you love the truth, the truth is a safeguard against receiving what? Lies. Okay. Verse 12. That they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in a righteousness. So the answer, the answer is in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What is it that keeps us secure? It is God holding us. It is the Spirit working in us. It is the truth sanctifying us. How do you tell the difference between true and false miracles? God will work true miracles through those who are totally surrendered to Him, who are whose hearts have an undivided loyalty, who are committed to His word, and who want to live obedient, God-fearing lives, who have the fruits of the spirit manifest in their lives. False miracles will be, will be worked on those who want a quick religious fix that is superficial that are not emphasizing the godly life of sanctification and obedience and who have the idea that uh, you can do as you please and still accept the uh, gospel of of, of Christ. So one is false and counterfeit miracles. Okay, second, what's strategy number two? Look at second. We're not going to go for every blank because we have enough for an entire six-month course here, so we'll move through the highlights. Look, strategy number two is a counterfeit religious revival. So he first works false and counterfeit miracles. Then he works a counterfeit religious revival. Notice what I've put. The last great movement in the world is not a, you're writing in, secular movement. It is not a secular movement in which secular men and women oppose the people of God. No, the last great movement will be a religious movement, a counterfeit to the revival of primitive godliness that's taking place among God's people. Notice the Last Great Movement is not a secular movement in which secular men and women oppose the people of God. The Last Great Movement is a religious movement, a counterfeit to the revival of primitive godliness that will be taking place among God's people. The arguments brought against the saints in the last days will be religious arguments. The motivations for actions against those walking close to their Heavenly Father will be religious motivations. So it is not a secular... It's not a secular... Movement. It's a religious movement. It's a counterfeit revival. It is religious arguments. It's religious motivations. Do you have that? Okay, we'll go over again. The last great movement is not a what? Secular movement in which what? Secular men and women oppose the people of God. The last great movement is a what? Religious movement, a what? Counterfeit to the revival of primitive godliness. The arguments brought against the saints in the last days will be what kind of arguments? Religious. And the motivation is what? religious, you've got it. One of the most powerful statements on end events. If I had one statement to have you memorize on end events, it would be this statement. Great Controversy, page 464. And I want to spend a little time with that, on that statement with you. And I'll ask you some questions as we go through the statement. You, bottom of page four, right-hand column. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, what is another name For the final visitation of God's judgments on the earth. What's that? What is it? Seven last plagues. plagues. So let's read it that way. Before the seven last plagues, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness that has not been witnessed since apostolic times. What do we call that, the revival of primitive godliness? That's when what is poured out? Glatter rain. rain. Glatter rain. Now keep this in mind. Neither the Bible or the writings of Ellen White teach ...that the latter rain will be poured out at a particular period of time in its fullness. They rather teach that the gentle showers of the latter rain will begin to fall... ...and the latter rain will, the rain will come down more and more and more and more. I have people say to me all the time, where on a time chart will the latter rain fall? Does it come after the National Sunday Law? Does it become before? The problem with that kind of thinking is only if events are right... And there's some kind of time chart that if I get it straight in my head, I'm going to understand when the latter rain falls. The truth of the matter is, Ellen White says, the latter rain can be falling on hearts all around you. You may not even know it. She says we're living now in the time of the latter rain. So the latter rain is the outpouring of God's spirit to finish his work on earth. That does not come at a punctiliar point in time, but begins individually in individual hearts. And as more seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the fullness comes until God has a representative group of people filled with his Spirit. So, now notice, before the final visitation of God's judgments on the earth, back to the sentence, that's the seven last plagues, there'll be among the people of the Lord a revival of primitive godliness. That's, as has not been witnessed since apostolic times, that's the latter rain. The Spirit and power of God will be poured out on his children. So they receive the latter rain to give the what? What? Loud cry, you've got it. So, but notice we're backing up here. We're backing up. So, if I say over here at this point, probation closes and the seven last plagues are poured out, okay? If that point in time, is there a point in time when everybody's going to have made their final irrevocable decision? Is that going to happen? Yes. Okay, and so probation closes, then the seven last plagues begin. But before that, the what will be given? The loud cry. But in order to have power to give the loud cry, you have to receive the what? The Let Let rain. rain. Okay. Now, let's keep reading. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. What work is it that the enemy of souls desires to hinder? What? Let You've got it. That's it. The latter rain and the what? Let loud cry. cry. Okay. So the enemy of souls, and before the time of such a movement shall come. When? So before the latter rain and loud cry occur, something's going to happen. What is it? He, who's the he? Will endeavor to prevent it. Prevent what? Latter rain and loud cry. By introducing a what? Counterfeit. Does the counterfeit revival for the world and Adventism take place before or after the latter rain and loud cry are given in their fullness? Wait a minute he that has ears, to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There will be in the world and in some Adventist churches a counterfeit religious revival that will come before the outpouring of the latter rain in the loud cry. The devil reads prophecy And he knows that the latter rain and loud cry will be the finishing of God's work on earth. He wants to get people involved in the counterfeit so they'll miss the true. That's what this is talking about. We continue. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. What will thousands be saying? This is God's special blessing, but it won't be. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. What can we expect to see in the very near future? I am not a prophet, but I do read prophecy. I am not a prophet, but I do believe in the writings of the prophet that God gave to the remnant. What can we expect to see? Here's what we can expect to see. We will expect to see, in America, a false religious, a mighty religious interest. As there is economic chaos in this country, and if you look at our national debt and those that study economy, which know it much more than I predict that we're on a slender thread right now economically. Those who look at weather patterns talk about global warming. What can we expect to see? We, can see? we can expect to see further disaster and chaos. We can expect to see that. In that context, churches then will be calling for all-night prayer vigils. There will be great churches across America that rise up in revival. There will be miracles that sweep through these churches. There will be the gift of tongues that sweeps through. Many Adventists who have been barren of spirituality, longing for something genuine, authentic, but who have not rooted their minds in the word of God will be swept off their feet. Adventism will be affected by the crisis that will come. This false revival, this manifest revival that will take place in the context of chaos that is, that is going to occur will sweep almost the whole world but there will be those who are loyal and faithful and true to God they are longing to reflect in their lives the fruits of the spirit love, joy and peace they're longing to bring glory to his name they have surrendered hearts they're the remnant They seek his will, and upon this group of people, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The loud cry is given. With thousands of voices all over the world, the honest and hard are drawn in. Multiplied millions come into this last day message, and it triumphs in glory in the final crisis. So, what are some of Satan's deceptions? False and counterfeit miracles, a counterfeit religious revival. Number three, strategy, spiritualism. Spiritualism. Notice the statement of Ellen White, Great Controversy, page 588. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Through spiritualism, Satan appears as a benefactor of the race, healing the diseases of the people, and professing to present a new and more exalted system of religious faith. So the devil is going to use spiritualism, holding an evangelistic meeting in the Philippines. One night, one of the Philippine army officers came to me. He had, sat in, he had been in my meeting where I talked about the truth about death. And he said, Pastor Mark, we got to talk. I said, Sure. He said, you know, my wife died about 10 or 15 years ago. The other night I was sleeping on my bed and I looked up and I saw this manifestation before me. And it was my wife. She looked younger. She looked more beautiful. She reached out her hands and said, darling, darling, I've come to hug and embrace you and to tell you that I'm okay. I'm in a better land. He said, Pastor Mark, I remembered what you read in the book of Job, that the the dead never come back to their house. I remembered what you read in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, that said, The living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. I remembered what you, what you talked about in Psalm 6, verse 5, that it says in the grave there's no remembrance of you. And in Psalm 115, verse 17, where it says, The dead praise not the Lord. And I remembered going over in John 11, where it talks about Lazarus sleepeth, and I looked at this form, this apparition, and I said, You are not my wife. You're trying to deceive me. In the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. Amen. And he said, Pastor Mark, Before my eyes, that evil angel disappeared. The devil is going to palm off a great counterfeit. And here's what the counterfeit is. Unless you have faith in the word of God and you have not learned to trust your emotions, you will be deceived. Faith in the word of God and absolute confidence in God If you allow yourself to be hyped up constantly, and if you live on a religious experience of an emotional high, the devil will give to you a false emotional high. That's why God's leading us back to his word. That's why he's leading us to something solid, something secure, something. See, the devil always wants the subjective. God always wants the objective. The devil always wants us to base truth on experience. God wants us to evaluate experience by truth. My experience is no determinant for what is truth. Truth always governs and guides and shapes my experience. It's not that I long for an experience... And because I have that experience, that verifies what truth is. All experience in religious belief is tested by truth, not the other way around. But to a generation that says, we need to have an experience, the devil will give a counterfeit experience through spiritualism. So what are the devil's strategies? False and counterfeit miracles, one. Two, counterfeit religious revival. Three, spiritualism. Four, Last deception. Satan's personation of Christ. Satan's personation of Christ. Great Controversy 624. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception. Satan himself will personate Christ. The church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the earth, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in Revelation. The false loud rain comes before the true. The false loud cry comes before the true. The false miracles before the true. And the false manifestation of Satan comes before the true. But thank God for his word. Thank God for the map and the light on the road ahead. We're going to finish this class. I'm taking a brief look at the latter rain, and then this afternoon we'll come back. Hosea six, verse one to three. Hosea six, God is not going to be left without the final word. Final chapter, not written yet. Final act in the drama, not yet given. Hosea 6, verse 1. And onward, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn and he'll heal us. He's stricken, he'll bind us up. The great healing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life. After two days he'll revive us, on the third day he'll raise us up. That he may live, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. See, here's the people that the latter rain falls upon. Those that pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Those that seek the knowledge of his word. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. The former rain that fell gently in the agricultural cycle of Israel in the spring, that former rain, we couldn't call it early rain. The early rain watered the seed, helped it to grow. You can write it there, page two, page six, session two. Early rain waters the seed, helps it to grow. But at the end of the agricultural cycle, the what comes? Latter rain. So the gentle rain is falling now. But God is going to pour out his spirit in latter rain power. The latter rain comes to produce a mighty harvest. But let me ask you a question. Let's look at the latter rain from two perspectives. First, what it does in the heart. And second, what it does in the world. First, what it does in the heart. If I have not planted the seeds of the word of God in my heart, can the latter rain germinate seed that's not been planted? Can the latter rain cause crops to grow if they haven't been already growing? Take the seed of the word of God, Luke 8, 11. Plant it in your mind, plant it in your heart. And as the spirit of God is poured out in latter rain... Those seeds will blossom into love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Under the influence of the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, God will intensify the active Christian virtues in your life. He'll give you compassion and mercy and patience and love and kindness. As we seek Him now to have the fruits of the Spirit manifest in our lives, the latter rain will intensify the work that the early rain has already done. But if there is no seed growing, if there's nothing germinated... The latter rain cannot fall upon that sort of germinate seed. Secondly, I've had people say to me, Pastor Mark, we passed all that this literature. Nothing happened. We went out, GYC, in a cold Minneapolis afternoon. Our knees were knocking. Our hands hands were together. And we came back, and there was not that much. There's some little church we don't believe in evangelism. We mailed the handbills before. When did God say it? When did God say to do it only if you get results? sow the seed, pass out the literature give the Bible studies preach the message of God because when the latter rain falls all those television programs, all those radio programs, all that seed we've sown is going to come in a great harvest for God and thousands and thousands will come to this last day message. When I was young I used to get excited about it I slowed down a little bit in my old age but I'll tell you, I still got one or two good sermons left in me I don't worry about all those people who say it can't be done. They didn't see a lot of rain power yet. I don't worry about all those people that say, Mark, you're spending all this money on evangelism. I say, yeah, what are you spending your money on? I don't worry about that. I'm not caught up in some egotistical success syndrome. All I want to do is do it for Jesus. Do it for Jesus. Tell somebody about Jesus. Tell somebody about Jesus. Give Jesus, give Jesus all your life and all your heart. Pass out that literature. Give some Bible study. Get involved in that radio program. Get involved in those youth efforts. You are saying, watch what God does. Because the latter rain, latter rain is going to be poured out. Look here. Great controversy, 611. The work will be similar to that of the day at Pentecost as the former rain was given in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the opening of the gospel to cause the upspringing of the precious seed so the latter rain will be given at its close for the ripening of the harvest. Then shall we know if we know, if we fall on to know the Lord, is going forth as prepared as a morning. He'll come as the rain, as the latter and former rain in the earth. Be glad and rejoice. He's given you the former rain moderately. When was the former rain given historically? Pentecost. Pentecost. And how many were baptized? Pentecost, one day, one place. And the Bible calls that what? Moderate. Moderate. If you saw 3,000 people baptized at one time in one place, would you call that moderate? And they were fully converted? But the Bible says he's given you the former reign what? Moderately. The only way you can know that that's moderate is this. It's moderate in comparison to what's to come. It's moderate in comparison to what is to come. But he will give you the latter rain. I'll pour up my spirit on all flesh. God's people, God's truth, God's church is not going to be outdone by Satan. Amen. There will be those who are on their knees praying and seeking him. Who are fully surrendered to him who are passionate about sharing his love with others. He will pour out the Holy Spirit in latter rain power, and the work of God on earth will be finished. There will be a crisis, but Christ will take us through the crisis. There will be a great shaking, but the ship will go through. This is no time to get off the boat. It's kind of like the ark. The animals on the ark were not housebroken. There was a little smell in the ark. But Noah didn't jump overboard to get drowned in the waves. The ark of this church is going through. Sometimes there is a little smell from here or there. In your quarters. Somebody always talks to me about, this is wrong with the church, that's wrong with the church. I say, you think those animals on that ark were housebroken? You think Noah didn't have some smell from some time to time? That was God's ark. Every board was put in there by God. God's hand was on that ark. There were no leaks in that ark. God's church is going through to end time. And the rain in Noah's day simply symbolizes... The latter rain that'll be poured out, that the ark will sail through, on the waters of the Spirit, at end time. In our next class, we're going to talk about the shaking coming to the Adventist Church. The elements that bring that shaking. We're going to look at who's going to be shaken out. You know the you know Ellen White says some of the conservatives are going to be shaken out. Did you know that she says that uses that term? So you know she says some of the liberals are going to be shaken out. You know, she says some of the people that are alive are going to be shaken out. Some of the people are going to be sleep- sleeping shaken sleeping out. But you know what she says? You don't have to be shaken out. You can survive as part of the remnant. I would say that probably my next class is the most powerful up until this time in the series. If you were going to miss a class, you should have missed this morning classes. <laughs> I'm giving my students. Lance, you hearing this? Malcolm, you hearing this? These are evangelistic students. I have to teach them how to advertise the next meeting. (laughs) Coming up this afternoon, I'm talking about the shaking of Adventism. This class is the answer to every offshoot that ever was or ever will be. What I'm going to show this afternoon is that the method that God uses to purify his church is different at end time than he's ever used in history. Don't miss it. I see you this afternoon. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org also find great witnessing media at www.audioverse.org and at www.hopevideo.com.